Hi, my name is Cesar Cavazos and welcome to Friction Law. I am joined by my co-host Rick Blaylock and we are here to bring you the best insights of UX, developer experience and how we experiment with the extraction of joy, struggles and other emotions when using technologies. Let's get started. All right, welcome to another episode of Friction Log. And today we're going to talk about Vercel. Uh, it was called Zite just a few months ago. It's definitely a hot topic in the tech community right now. And the person that tried out for the first time, uh, first time experience, was Cesar. Cesar um, is who I'm going to interview today. And we're going to talk about his experience as a first time a user of Vercel, what it was like, some of the frictions, some of the blockers he ran into, and some of the the delights and things like that. So that's that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Cesar, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you, Rick? Doing well, doing well. When are you going to come visit me in Jupiter? It's going to take a little while based on whatever uh, is happening. I think there's something going on that um, doesn't allow me to take a flight straight to you, but Anytime. Do you have uh, my room ready and, and good to go? Yeah, yeah. Well, we do have a tropical storm coming here in a little bit, so that would inhibit you too, among other things. <laughs> okay. This Today we were at like 102 degrees, so I don't know, like tropical storm and then the heat of uh, Sacramento region. I don't know. Pros and cons. But yeah, as you were saying, uh, Vercel, uh, that was the first time experience, so I'm looking forward to share some of the findings around it. The Jamstack. Yeah, so yeah, the Jamstack. Everybody's talking about it, right? In two years, it'll be some other acronym. <laughs> you know how it goes. You um, bet. So, so let's talk about Vercel. So what is Vercel and who's it for? Vercel is, it's a SaaS, right? Software as a service. And the idea is that you have, you develop your own website, you preview it, you ship it automatically whenever you're merging code. You can have a bunch of plugins. It supports most of the Jamstack technologies out there. It allows you to focus on just developing your app and they provide SSL, they provide your custom domain name, uh, they have a free plan, they have a team plan. Pretty much, it it is a continuous integrate or a continuous delivery tool. I would say where you can just keep shipping fast. Very good for agile. Very good for shipping continuous changes in your website. It does have some things like sharing collaboration. It allows you to preview what code is going to be merged. And I think the other thing that is very important is that it has a global edge network. So. It means that basically they provide their own CDN so everybody can see your website as fast as they can. Right, right. Yep. Makes sense. So I've actually used Vercel before, and so I kind of try to stay out of your friction log study so I wouldn't bias the opinion at all, you know, for your first time experience. But I've had a pretty good experience with it. It's funny because, like you mentioned, CD, continuous delivery, the CICD tools have always been kind of boring to me. Um, like just like they exist just 
because they, out of necessity they have to be and I just never really enjoyed it. But for whatever reason, Vercel just doesn't feel like that to me. It, it feels like an integral part of what I've been deploying and doing, even at work right now at Pinpoint. And I don't know, it doesn't feel like a boring CI, CD tool. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, um, you don't get the same friction Let's let's uh, use the word there. You get the value of it. You are technically doing the same. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about the persona here. But as a quick start, like I have experience with CI CD tools all the way from setting them up to just continuously running for multiple uh, projects, back and front end mobile. And this didn't feel like one of them. It felt it felt much better in a way. And I'm quite happy. That's that's the gist of it. Right. So uh, speaking of personas, so anytime you do a study like this, a, a developer experience study, you always got to define your persona and experience and things like that. So Cesar, just for the study sake, I know it's on the on the log part on our website, but what what have you used before? Like have you have you used Netlify or other Vercel type competitors? What other CI/CD things have you have you used? Like, what's some of your experience before you started using Vercel? I have used Netlify before. So, short story: I put together a little blog now that I'm focusing on cloud integration, where there are those uh, things that it takes me like five hours to do, and then it's a simple solution, and I just keep like a, a journal. So, I put a blog out there. I used Gatsby JS and I deploy using Netlify. And so I had a little bit of experience with that. Uh, I saw something in there where, as I was saying, I have experience setting up Jenkins and Hudson and even Travis CI. And the one that I remember the most was uh, Jenkins. Jenkins was a pain to set up just in general and maintain it and updates and plugins and it it was it was a pain, but it was as you say, it's pretty standard in enterprise, which is where most of my work happens. And when I when I did this little blog, I, I even had like my own uh, web server ready to go, and then I ended up not needing it, and I ended up just using Netlify and making sure that I have the domain set up. It handled all the certificates. It uses Let's Encrypt, both uh, Vercel and Netlify. So I had some experience with it. And then when we were talking about you doing the friction log blog with uh, Next.js, then uh, you mentioned Vercel and I say, oh, I want to try it out. Uh, and and as you said, you stay away from it. I, I got the sense like all the way from the beginning, right? Just creating an account, spend probably like 30 minutes reading uh, the website, just what they what they have to offer, who is it for. Their persona, which is mentioned on the homepage, is something that I, uh, that I enjoy because I identify myself, is it's for developers. And I do cloud integration. I do mobile development. I do a little bit of management. I do a lot of things, but I identify myself as a developer and this was definitely something that helped me not think about other complexities in deploying and just focusing on the development process. So I really like that part. I probably have more experience in mobile development than web development these days. 
uh, but I still do some web development. So that's how I define the persona and what's the background on that persona. Okay, cool. Good, good. So before we get into the actual developer experience study, the friction logs and stuff like that, let's just kind of talk about the the sentimental or sentiment type stuff. So like the experience related to the product, you know, how did it go? Just general comments. What, what did you what did, what did you feel like when you when you were using it after you were done? Like you were like, hey Rick, I'm glad we're putting the friction log website on Vercel, or you're like, ah, I don't know, I'm not sure, or take it or leave it. Like, what what was your sentiment afterwards? It was very positive. It was something that I didn't expect it to take this amount of time. I was expecting to have this huge log. Although I already had some background on, on other tools, but at the end of the day, I was quite happy with the result. I understood what went wrong, what went right. I felt like I can talk about it. So I even recommended to a couple of friends already. So it's like, hey, you should check this out. Like a couple of friends were, were setting up their own blogs. And, you know, everybody is kind of like understanding that when you publish through tools like uh, Medium or WordPress or you don't really own the content or your content is actually living somewhere else. So I, I feel like there is a lot of us out there trying to build their own blogs and trying to deploy that. And this is a perfect solution now. It might not be the best business for Vercel because Vercel is targeted more for teams uh, and that's where they earn their money. But the popularity in the development world does bring that. Like I will recommend if I'm on a small company and we're, we're building our own little website, then I'll recommend to use it without a doubt. So I was quite happy. I, I was surprised that it didn't take that amount of time. I even asked myself, did I do it okay? And then I went back to my Jenkins time and I was like, oh yes, I did. And I even yeah. got like SSL certificate. So that, that was, yeah. that wasn't bad. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It is true from a developer experience perspective. It's just, it's so nice compared to what you used to have to do with Jenkins and stuff for sure. <laughs> so it is okay, something cool. that um, I, I see in the website that a lot of companies are using it, like Airbnb and Twilio and the Washington Post. So I, I know that are that are and there are many more, I'm sure. And I think it solves a necessity. So as a product, uh, it it is targeted to the right people. It is targeted to the developers. It is solving a problem as developers doing the deployments. Like I, I have my uh, web hosting in in a couple of servers. And I do Docker and I try to do as less as possible to maintain the websites that I have in there. And the fact that I didn't have to worry about my my own blog back in when I use Netlify or with the friction log that we right. didn't have to set up another server, then it was solving a problem. And that is something that automatically makes you willing to pay for it the moment you need it more professionally than just your 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 blog. Right. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's funny as far as the ecosystem goes. It, there's just so much talk and chatter about Vercel on Twitter and you know on Reddit and other places. So they've done a great job at capturing the developer community. You know, versus like, could you imagine this thing like <laughs> this thing being an enterprise only type product and like just picture an enterprise sales guy 
trying to sell this thing for $500,000 a year or whatever. And so it's just like, it would, it would just be so lame, but like they, they were able to make it cool for the developer and it's very grassroots, which is good. And the other way around, right? So the the other thought that you might have is like, oh, I'm just going to build Jenkins as a service and put a little front end um, in front of it, um, per se. So you do that and then try to sell it. And it's like, oh, it's Jenkins. But then everybody has that little crutch when you think about Jenkins. Not, I mean, it has its use cases and it's good for some use cases and it provides... A lot of flexibility to to some degree for some enterprises, but it doesn't go against that developer community that it is active, that it is trying to build stuff fast, that it that doesn't want to worry about maintaining or deploying, and that they want to take modern standards like having SSL or having a CDN delivering your content. And they don't want to go to AWS and set up everything from scratch. And it, it, it's just a pain to maintain. So, yeah. And I mean, imagine doing the PR previews, you know, the preview links. Imagine doing that with Jenkins. You have to, you know, your own infrastructure and all, having to worry about all that stuff. Blah. <laughs> Correct. And, and the footprint, right? So, how much are you going to do? The least you're going to have is spawning up a Docker container. And then publishing it there, getting a URL, send it back to GitHub. It is work. And then something breaks or your Docker versions or you're running out of resources. Like it, it is it is one of the premises of SaaS software, right? I want to pay you to handle all of this. And I think uh, this is uh, very good for the, for the money that you, there is a good value for the money that you're paying. Now, I want to ask you, did you use it before it was Vercel when it was SAIT? I think yeah. they switched on April this year. Yep, yep, yep. We were using it at Pinpoint uh, well before that. Yep. Interesting. We the, yep, PR preview links, and we had all our builds and our different uh, subdomains and stuff. And, yep, we were using a lot of it. Very nice. So let's get into the uh, the study, the developer experience study. Let's start off, I think last time we started off with, like, frictions and stuff let's start off with delights let's just start off with that so what do you think of the whole intro process you know the, the beginning part the onboarding the marketing sites sign up authentication and then like jumping into the product with like okay now what do i do next that's that's one of the most important parts right when you're talking about first impressions and a friction that's that's where you definitely don't want friction so how was that whole process it was effortless. I will put it in, in one word. So I have this thing where if I am working with development tools and they provide GitHub authentication as OAuth, then I will just go and use it. Less accounts to worry about. My GitHub account is, I would say, pretty secure with two-factor and whatnot, and I trust it. So it is one of the things that I do as opposed to going through email and going through uh, or some other methods. So I use that method. And as you said, I, I focus a lot on that sign up process or that create account process because a lot of companies are doing it because we know it's, it, it is a pain point. It is the one thing that it's like, oh, I got to create an account. So you want to put it out there the exact moment that you have your value proposition in front of your persona. And I think Brazil did that pretty well. Now, I was coming from 
our discussion before, like what are we going to use for the blog? So I kind of like knew that I, I, I was going to create an account right away. So it's not like I had to be sold, but I don't consider that cheating because it, it the whole process gave me that look of, okay, here's your value. Here's what you do. Here's what you offer. I'm ready. And the button was there, right? So I used GitHub authentication. It was, uh, it was pretty easy and I consider it a delight, just the whole experience. Okay, good, cool. So during the, the signup process and all that, did you, was it, was there any time, even when you got dumped into the product for the first time after signup and all that, was there any time where you felt lost or like, did, how did they do handholding you through like, Hey, here's what you have to do next. Did they give you anything or did they just kind of land on like an empty screen and you had to figure out to, you know, connect a repo and a build and all that kind of stuff? Like, what was that like? So I knew that I had to bring my own project. And when you land in your page, you will have a import project, a big button, I believe it's on the left, right below your user account. So you click that, and then since you already have your GitHub authentication, then you will select your Git repository. You will paste it. If it's private, it will make sure that that you uh, give permissions. If it's public, it will make sure that you own it. So it was was pretty easy to set up to, to that degree. And I knew what I needed to do. I did check the other tabs. So they have several tabs on your dashboard and there is like projects and integration and activity domains, usage and settings. So it was, I, I kind of like saw what I needed to see at that point. I knew what was next. I just went ahead and explored the dashboard a little bit. Obviously the projects just list your projects, integration. There's a whole marketplace the one thing that I saw right away is like, oh, this is what I would use to notify through um, Slack. I didn't look much farther than that, but I, I kind of like understood like, oh, this is my notification or webhooks, if we want to call it. There are many words for it. Activity, I, I found that interesting for like teams for a personal uh, hobby account. I don't think it's it's a big deal. You might want to see it from time to time, but I don't think I will use it. What is activity? What does that mean? So basically it, it is a kind of like an audit log of what you're doing. So you log in, oh, you create a okay. team, you log in from this location, you create a project, you it's it's every, it's your audit trail, which yeah, I see yeah. valuable for okay. teams, not for me. I know what I'm doing. But um <laughs> it was it was okay to see it. I, I don't think it cost me any annoyance or um, any happiness it was like okay so you keep a track of it maybe it's useful for the future the other tab was domains so you can either buy it straight from there transfer in i usually have all my domains in one provider so i will just right. bring it in it has some usage so some some things there there was nothing to see at that point so i just ignore it i figured there is a little bit of basic analytics in there and then of course, there was the settings with like your email and your name and username and whatnot. One thing that I that I got to say, I look right away when I sign up for a new tool is, do they have a way to delete my account? Yeah. And that usually gives me trust. <laughs> I don't know why. I think I struggle a couple of times in the last few years. 
with things that I wanted to delete and you have to contact a human and then that human is trying to sell you something or keep you and I just don't like that so mm, if if you're humans <laughs> if you offer a self-serve service you should also offer a self-serve termination of account service so I, that that's how I I would see it now if we ever do a login for friction log that that way you know that you're going to have uh, your delete account button in there because somebody's obsessed with that yeah yeah right. right but that was it that was my my initial just walk through and it's like okay i'm ready to bring the code and i think we have the the blog at the, the very early stage so so far so good i i think that was that was uh, just a general comment of the dashboard things that i was looking for how i felt with each of those tabs and and yeah that's it did you use uh, the CLI at all when you were setting stuff up or did you just use their user interface? When I set it up, I didn't use it. But then after I installed it because I wanted to complete the log and you're going to see it at the end of the video. And it was also a little delight. It was like, oh, it already recognized the GitHub URL based on the .git folder. And it knows that, uh, that I was at the moment I log in and everything just links it and and it's all all good to go i haven't used it that much since but i it was definitely something like oh i like it i you already know the information you know it's there uh, and you're using it right. in the right way so i consider that a delight as well right right cool okay what other you have a bunch of other delights in the log here i'm looking at it on the website and we could talk about all of them we don't have to talk about all of them though just for time but is anything else that stands out as like a delight that you want to talk about there is a couple of things so the first one which is really fast is the deployment right so the value proposition that i read at the beginning was you are here to import your project and we will just be in charge of the deployment of it and i mm-hmm. i got that like once i sorted out a couple of issues that we're going to talk about then the moment I was like, oh, let's tie to let's it's time to do the deployment. And in just a few minutes, I was like, oh, that's it. That's done. Okay. The certificate is up and run, running. Then perfect. I'm good to go. So that that is as a value proposition. Maybe there is not a lot of comment around it, but as a value proposition, it's just there. And I loved it. Now, the second thing that it is a delight that you're going to see in that uh, blog post was the pull request re- uh, previews. So you mentioned it, you, you use them all the time. I use them all the time. And I think the one thing that, I don't know if they did it on purpose, I suppose they did, is it brings the heuristic of the visibility of the system status. So uh, wh- what does that mean? It means that what I'm seeing on the PR, on the pull request or merge request, if you use like GitLab, it is what's happening on the system. Either they're building, it's ready, some, there's an error. Like it is there. At, at any point in time, I know what's going on. And I really like that. I think it's it was one of the pain points that I had with Jenkins, I remember. Like I had to send the status myself because Jenkins will, will only do it when you program it to do it. As opposed to here, that it is just out of the box. is like, we're doing this with your code. We're deploying it. Yeah. Here's the URL. Right. 
you don't have to go to like I don't go to Bursell at all whenever I do a pull request. I just focus on the GitHub pull request. It notifies me because obviously I'm the author of it. And the moment that you review it and approve it, then and we both test it on our ends, then we're good to go. So that was a delight that I noticed that it uses one of those UX principles that uh, become a developer experience. UX heuristics, visibility of system status. One of the things that we talk on this episode and that I touched base on some frictions or some logs that we did was the visibility of system status. And we kind of like explain it, but I want to ask Rick, since uh, he has a lot more experience than I on some of these things and he works on them daily. Uh, how do you define the visibility of system status, Rick? Yeah, so visibility of system status is one of those heuristics that is really important for usability. And, and when we say heuristic, it, we mean, you know, it's like a general rule, a general guideline. It's not law. It's not set in stone. Like this is the behavior of humans. It's just one of those good best practice things. And the visibility of system status is way up there as one of the most important things. And the definition, I'll read a definition from a Norman group here. The visibility of system status refers to how well the state of the system is conveyed to its users. Ideally, systems should always keep users informed about what is going on through appropriate feedback within reasonable time. So that's the definition of it. But I, I think everybody would probably agree with that. Oh yeah, of course we need to know what's going on. But if you think about it from an empathetic perspective, a user, well, let's look at it in the Vercel light because that's what we're talking about. So, you know, your, your build is going on. You're trying to deploy this hot fix and you're waiting for the web app to, to deploy or uh, API to deploy or something. And uh, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what the status is. All you see is like building, building, building. It's like, okay, but what is it doing? That, that creates anxiety. That creates panic. And the opposite is if there's a visibility of that status and you can get that information in a bunch of different places. Like in the case of Vercel, you can get it in the PR itself because they use the GitHub app and they, you know, they, they show that right there in the PR with the statuses. And then you can click into it and see an actual detailed log of the build. So you're always going to know what's going on with a Vercel build. And that is a great example of this heuristic, which is visibility of system status. It eases anxiety. It helps communicate how things are going, which is very important. The, the more information you have, certainly the the potential for better decision making you have so yeah so that's that's one of the top usability heuristics that we have to worry about and think about all the time <laughs> agree and following with the same article that you mentioned and we're going to put it on the show notes so you can read through it it mentions two things that are very important the knowledge is power right and i think we forget that when we're developing and then the second one that it mentions is the appropriate feedback so what how many of us as developers, you go to the point where you have these wireframes and these designs and you might have a error handling, kind of like a generic error handling, but how many errors can you have on a network transaction, right? On a network call. You can have issues with the connectivity, which can have authentication, format, something changed on the MPI. You can have so many errors. And how many of us have just say, oh, I'm going to come back to that later. And for now, I'm just going to say, alert, something has occurred. Please try again later. 
and that breaks this of what's going on. So part of the system status is the error state. And that has to get some love just in general from all of us as developers. So I try myself to go and really like, okay, what kind of errors can you have? An HTTP code error? Do I get a message from the API that I'm using with what the error is? How do I fix it? So all of that gives us that control, that knowledge to the user to say, oh, I know what's going on. I know what I did wrong. Uh, how many times you have a form and then you miss something or I was filling up buying something and the credit card, the expiration date was in the year was in four digits as opposed to two or the other way around. I can't remember exactly, but it didn't really tell me what the error was. I use uh, one password to fill it out. So I never actually saw the placeholder text that they have. And I was in one password filling it with the other format and that was causing the issue and the fact that i didn't get the knowledge to fix it i was frustrated that is a system status the system is in an error and it is not showing it now there are some other things that i want to point out we live in a very asynchronous world that's why i message and whatsapp and some of those apps tell you when somebody read your message it is because we live in a very asynchronous world where you just trigger actions and then at some point you go and check them out. And most of the systems and most of the frameworks that we use, it's all asynchronous unless you're doing something very important that you have to make the user wait for something. And I know we're going to talk at some point about loading indicators and loading screens and whatnot, but for this... I wanted to touch on that. It's like the system also includes errors. It includes asynchronous tasks, what's going on. And having that information at hand is something that the users value. And Brazil is an example of a good use of it. Yep. Perfect. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That That is definitely something that stands out as something really nice. It doesn't matter where you're at. If you're in GitHub um, or you're in Vercel, you always know where your build is at. And to your point, that's the number one of the 10 usability heuristics, visibility system status. That's, that's good that you brought that up for sure. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to some frictions. Let's not talk about all the rosy stuff here. Let's talk about some frictions. So you had several frictions. I, I know there was a couple that I knew you were running into a couple because you texted me while you were doing it. And you're like, hey, Rick, I need this. Hey, Rick, I need access to this. <laughs> like, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, you got to do this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some of those things. So let's maybe talk about, I think probably they're all kind of related that, that you have one about the GitHub permissions for the organization, for the friction log organization, and then the org-based repo setup. I know that was like the the first wall you ran into. I did. So the purpose was publishing the friction log website and it is in a GitHub organization. So I have access to their org. Uh, at that point, I didn't have admin access to it. And I just went ahead and tried to import it and it wasn't letting me, but it wasn't really telling me why it was wrong. So, and I was just going with the flow, right? So then I went back and I said, okay, let me try with this 
this GitHub URL or this GitHub website that I have on my own, and let's see how like what's what's wrong. So the uh, developer at hand like debug and try to understand what's happening. The message wasn't uh, really that obvious, but then when I look back, like after like ten minutes. I was like, oh, okay, so I can be part of an organization, but for me to manage the deployments, I have to be an admin. And it makes sense, right? Like you you wouldn't want a contractor that you have in your GitHub org setting up yourself or a repository in your product. So it, it makes sense that when you see it that way, at that moment, I didn't see it and there was nowhere to be found. So it was it was something that, I as like I assume or I kind of like conclude that they just assume that if you're an org, you're an org admin. Like if you are setting up yourself for an organization repo, then automatically you are the organization admin. And we do this thing. I think we do it in purpose. Uh, so for our listeners. Uh, to the degree that sometimes you sign up for an account, sometimes I sign up for the account. Obviously, we don't share passwords. And then we try to give each other good permissions. Good in the sense of for these kind of use cases where in this case, I was in the org admin, but I had to do a task as an org admin. And it happens the other way around. So it was it was something that it, it, looking back, it's like, oh, okay, now it's, it's obvious that uh, in for, from a security standpoint, it totally makes sense. I just didn't see it. Uh, and it wasn't explained to me that, hey, if you want to set up, like we're seeing that you're trying to set up an org, but you are not an org admin. I don't know if the GitHub API returns them uh, the permissions that I have, or it just yeah, returns you, you like- you can get info. You can figure that out. Yeah, you can definitely figure that out. So maybe that is something that, that it will help if somebody is less listening to us about Purcell, then you can fix it, or maybe it's already fixed. It happened a few weeks ago. They've been iterating a lot on it, so I, I do wonder if they've fixed some of those things. Because like one of the ones, one of the problems I had when they switched over to Vercel and they switched over to the new plans, where it's like you got your personal accounts, which are free, but then your, you know, the org GitHub org stuff is not, and you got to figure that out. It didn't tell you because I have a, a few orgs. Um, it didn't actually tell me when I was trying to connect a repo that I couldn't connect a personal repo to an org. Uh, build, uh, you know, it, it, inside Vercel. It didn't tell me. It just said, hey, I can't do this. It's not working. Hey, I can't do this. And I think they fixed that. So I, I think they've probably been working on, on some of that. But even on my side as an org admin, I still ran into a few problems um, trying to move repos over from other accounts. So, And it's always tricky, right, to integrate with third-party tools. And then you got to think yeah. about GitHub and GitLab and any other Git. And I'm sure, like, if you go through for example github enterprise i wonder what happens yeah. like can you do it or not since you know it's slightly like as a developer or as a user you see the same github interface when you have enterprise that's what we use uh at work but it, it does have some differences it does have some limitations and some pro features it has like sso and it has some other things right so i wonder what happens on on that end that that might be another another log that we can do but it was it was definitely a friction. Looking back, it's obvious now, and I'm sure they they have done changes to it. But that was that was one of the main ones, which turned into a blocker. 
So I consider a blocker whenever I wasn't able to go any farther than that. I look, maybe Google it for a few minutes and uh, looking at the docs and trying to figure out what was happening. And then I was like, well, the only thing that I am not is a GitHub admin. And that's when you got a text. But at that point, I think I even cut the recording and I just mention it in the in the video and I say, hey, I'm back after like five minutes of texting Rick, uh, which is what I did until you gave me the permissions. And now like my experience was different. Now I was able to do everything. And I think that the one, uh, this combination, it all sums up in, in two things. What I will change is first of all, say like for you to do an org, deployment or a repoint from an organization, you have to be an admin, right? So that is beforehand. So you don't have to fill it as a, as a friction or a blocker. You, it's just a requirement. And then the second one is if the error happens, if you you still try to do it, then show the error and like, oh, we couldn't do it because this, this, and that might be fixed. Um, I'm sure I'll try it out in the next few days and I will let you know in a, in a follow-up episode. But that was uh, that was the setup of the repo that was a little bit trickier than expected. Still, mm-hmm. probably took like thirty percent of the recording to do this, and still the rest of it was really simple. Right, right, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how they they have it structured. You know, part of this is just typical startup stuff trying to find a a market fit and you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, their, their pricing too is it, their new pricing is based on users accessing Vercel. And it, it it's just, it's funny. Like the, it, some of that causes friction and I don't know if it causes good friction or not. I haven't figured it out yet. Cause like you add one or two users or three users or whatever. And then maybe the rest of your company you don't add because they don't all need to be accessing the builds and looking at the builds. But Vercel offers so much more value than a user being able to log in and see a build, you know, score across the screen. So I I, th- I think they're still trying to figure their their market fit too. Which usually when when startups are trying to figure that stuff out, and I'm no doubt Vercel is going to probably change it ten times in the next year or two while they're trying to figure it out. That always causes friction too, and sometimes needless friction. And, and that's kind of where I felt like the the friction came for me where I was like, Oh, I've got this org and I want to grab this repo over here from my personal account and use it under here. And I, I couldn't do it. So yeah. Anyway, so just to comment on the, on the pricing stuff, when, when you're trying to figure out your pricing model, that, that, that'll cause friction in, in some of those weird, weird spots like that too. And I Very feel like point. you have to be extra clear because yes. And, and we want you to have like, I'll pay for Brazil like anytime, right? I get value out of it. But that point of like how much you pay, what tier are you in, how do you deploy that, how you roll up changes, and that is always a friction. And yep. sometimes you think that it is, like I was saying, oh, I now I get it why you have to be an org admin, but I'm pretty sure at some point during my friction and my blocker, I was like, oh, so you want me to use my GitHub org because your pricing is based on your GitHub orgs and now you want me to pay right away, even though like I'm doing this like kind of like as a first time kind of thing. And then obviously I think there was a free trial, but then like it, it was a really fast loop of like, oh, you just want me to pay. 
But then after thinking for a couple of minutes and going around, I was like, no, 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 wait, this is also from a security standpoint. What if Rick just hired me and I'm a contractor and I'm doing this deployment and then I'm kind of like having a mirror of his website on my end and I'm doing stuff with it. Um, obviously not going to last that long, but it could be, it could be a security yeah. thing. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. So you have to be yeah, an org admin. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question, actually. I wonder what happens if you're working off a fork of something. I wonder what, what how Verseau looks at that. Huh, interesting. We should try that just for fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's when, when everything starts to open up, right? To different use cases and what are you willing to pay or not. But as you said, like paying is always a friction. Because you're taking somebody money and paying also is a way for you to give an explanation to your value. Like if like, this is my value proposition, at what point I'm going to tell you how much it costs. Obviously, a lot of companies and, and I think it's a very good practice to have your pricing. I think you and I talk about the pricing of uh, sending stuff with SpaceX like you can actually quote your SpaceX payload um, directly on the website. If they can do it, then if you're <laughs> doing this kind of enterprise. <laughs> yes, but it is, it is a valid point. If a company that sends satellites to space can quote you what it will cost to, to use their services, and then you see these I don't want to say enterprise, but just these tools or these platforms or whatever that have this last tier where it says, oh, for enterprises, please contact us. It's like, yeah, 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 what yeah, do you mean? Yeah, you, yeah. you, I mean, I know you're probably going to offer me a discount, but can you just give me a baseline of what's going on? So pricing is, is something that as, as we, we can go on and on with the experiments of pricing on different platforms. But I always remember yeah, this sure. SpaceX example and like, if they can do it, I'm sure you can. And I think Vercel does it pretty well. Yeah. Does Vercel do that? Do they have uh, the enterprise like call to, I wonder if they do or not. Yeah. They, they probably do. Let me go open up. Yeah, they do. Oh, and yeah, you could go to a form. Of course you do. Yeah. That's all the typical, everybody does that. Right. That's, the the worst ones though are the ones where it's like they interview you basically to try to figure out exactly how much they can charge for stuff. It's like, oh my word. So how many, you know, extra large accounts on Amazon or uh, servers on Amazon are you gonna use? And how many of this and how many of that? And they build out this like fifty page document on your usage and goes, Okay, based on the cores and this and that and the other the pricing's five hundred thousand dollars. Thanks for calling us. And you're like, man, I'm just gonna go to your website and sign up, okay? Yeah, I'm done I, talk, I, done talking to you. <laughs> I agree. I, I there's value. Obviously, they're offering enterprise support, an op SLA of like ninety nine dot nine nine. So they're offering something. There is value in it, but then. Can, like, can you really tell me, you can just tell, uh, hey, it's going to cost you this much and we need a minimum of, I don't know, 50 seats, right? 50 members. Mm -hmm. So, because you will see like the other way around, right? Uh, there are people that will go and try to trick the game so you get all the enterprise features, but then you only have one person in it. 
and yeah. then they they want well, a paper I mean, person. But I don't know. It's yeah. just complicated. Well, even like we're talking about pricing, so we might as well just keep talking about it. Um, <laughs> so even Vercel, so we, we pay for Vercel, but we don't both pay for Vercel because we don't both need to access the builds, right? I mean, like at work, we pay for a lot more seats, but the reality is if they're going to base it around a seat like that, I think there needs to be more value for the individual user. And I also think it maybe discredits for sell a little bit because they offer so much value that's broader and bigger than just a user seat, a, a user login. I don't know. It, it just feels like, again, that they're just trying to find market fit. This is their first go at it since they launched for sell. You know, they switch from Zeit. So it's a good first, you know, step as they're dipping their toe in the water. But it, it doesn't feel like it, it'll be the end all. Um, it, it feels like they're more valuable than just charging 20 bucks a seat, you know? I agree. I think they have ways to go on, on the pricing structure. I also think that pricing is a complicated matter every business is oh, different and beautiful. the value that you bring is just like we can spend hours talking about it but i think it's a good it's a good subject to touch based on when we're doing these experiments so if any of our listeners want to hear more about pricing contact us <laughs> oh my <laughs> or not <laughs> or not so Okay, so that I think that covers the blockers that you recorded. What about um I mean there's no, there's nothing necessarily on this on this log here. Um looking at the website logs that you wrote down. But like, you know, Pola, principle of least astonishment. Is there anything that surprised you in a good way or surprised you in a bad way? Or even now after several weeks after doing the friction log, you look back and go, "Man, I'm still surprised by this." Or I'm still, you know, in a good way or bad way. Is there anything that stands out? There was a little friction when I merged my first pull request, and I think it's recorded in there, where I didn't know. So Brussel would generate a subdomain based on the GitHub branch, the repo, and then they will give you like a preview of your code, right, deployed. Mm -hmm. So you will go and test it out. And then you say, oh, this is good. And then you review the code, whatever. We merge it. And then that link is still there because it comes as a comment on GitHub. It's not going to go away. And after I merged it, I was still able to click it and go and visit it. And it brought me the question of like, huh, how long is this going to be on? Like, I, I know there are not going to be public URLs and they're probably not going to be accessed by anybody other than the team that it is working on. But I was curious because when I set up GitHub, or sorry, Jenkins back in the day, and I used Docker to deploy like an Angular application and do that, that, that sort of thing. The moment that pull request was merged, I wanted to just free the resources, just kill that container and, and move on, right? Where here it was still on. So I considered that a friction, not because it really affect me in any way, other than my mind went through that thought and say, okay, what happens with that? Am I getting a limit of like five or is it going to go away? And I uh, eventually I came back whenever I was, I was writing the blog post, I double check and I say, Oh, okay. So it automatically deletes them at some point in time. There is no way to trigger it manually. So if you wanted to just kill it, then you cannot. 
And I think that that is something that you would do from Brazil, not from GitHub. So there, there might be something there. Maybe people don't care. Maybe I, I, because of my background, I care about it. It was something that I experienced there. But going back to your question is like, oh, I'm still surprised. I'm still surprised of those pull request previews because it takes like seconds and I can go and look at the code. I don't have any issues with caching because they give you oh, a unique so this, URL. So this is a good surprise is what you're saying. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after, after the friction of like what happens with my code, but then I was coming back to answer your question of like, what do you still like about it or what do you still enjoy? And it's those pull request previews. It's like, it's faster to, to see that than to even try to uh, build a Docker container on my machine because I'm using a lot of stuff. So it is, it is nice. I still enjoy it every day. I haven't had to set up many repos more. So the setup process, I, I haven't really done anything with it. Now I have better expectations for these kind of tools. Like I don't think I can go back to Jenkins and I I went and, and do some other changes on Netlify and I was expecting some feature parity. They seem to be similar. I can't recall any specific difference that I would say, oh, this is way, way better. I am looking forward to use more of the CLI to do some of the deployments and and it goes also with the GitHub CLI and, and there's a ton of stuff going on there. So I think I'm going to explore some of that. But that is that is how I feel at this point. And I think uh, that explains pretty much every log that I had on, on the website. And hopefully that, that makes people go and try it out because, I mean, it's great. <laughs> right, right. Cool. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you, Cesar. And I appreciate your time on this and I uh, look forward to doing more studies on Vercel as uh, new features and things roll out. Thank you, Rick. It was really a good experience and yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's all for today's episode of Friction Log. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app and visit our website frictionlog.com. Adios, amigos. <laughs>